This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. We want to have a conversation here today. Uh, we want to talk about substantive issues. I think it's really important to hear both sides uh, of issues because it often makes you re-examine your own positions and get deeper insights into your own positions. Uh, we'll try to focus on the facts as much as possible, and uh, everyone gets extra points for citing true facts and not false facts. No trivia, no personalities, just hard-hitting issue analysis. With that, let me start with the first question, which is a yes-no question. President Trump, uh, who just appointed Larry Kudlow as his new economic advisor... No. In seeing, in seeing, no, no, that's not the question. Oh. In seeing Larry Kudlow on TV, he said, "You're looking handsome, Larry." Is Larry Kudlow handsome? <laughs> well, he used to do Cadillac commercials. So yeah, the guy is handsome. So he's handsome, uh, Bob. No. No. Okay. Well, I think we've, we've run that one to the ground. Um, that was a good debate. Uh, I thought it was... <laughs> yes, thank good, you. Thank but you. But we have you know, opinion. Can I, and, uh, can, I, can I just add a word of, uh, <laughs> of welcome to Stephen Moore? Because uh, for the last 15 years, I think it's more been than 50, that. Maybe 20 no, years? No, maybe, maybe. 30, 40? <laughs> uh, Stephen and I have debated on television with Larry Kudlow very often. Uh, and uh, I have enjoyed debating you, Steve. I think you're wrong most of the time, but I really... <laughs> no, seriously, I've enjoyed debating Steve, and I consider you a real friend. Uh, when you are debating on television, one thing that you... You don't have a chance to see the person you're debating. So it's a kind of surreal experience, Steve, <laughs> to have you... Same a, place? A hologram of you, right? Sitting right next to me. So, uh, yeah, well, I used to say with... with uh, because we, we did this almost 20 years on CNN every week. Uh, they call us the dynamic duo. And every once in a while, like every once in a blue moon, Bob Reich got it right, you know. And so <laughs> I used to say, uh, you know, even a blind squirrel finds an acorn every once in a while. And that's true. With you, but Thank we, you we had a lot of Okay, gentlemen. <laughs> so now that we've settled that and the Larry Kudlow issue to some extent, knowing there's two sides to that one as well, um, I want to talk about the following topics in order. I want to start with money and politics. I want to go to crony capitalism. I want to talk about free trade and tariffs, the 2017 tax bill, and income inequality. So we're going to How much discuss time do we those have? issues. <laughs> I, we'll, we'll be here three or four hours, but let's see if we can get through this fairly quickly. So let's start with money and politics. Is money and politics a problem in America? Bob. Yes. <laughs> Steve. Um, yeah, because our government is way, way, way too big. Well, let me, let me uh, elaborate. <laughs> um, the, what, we, what we have here is, and, and the, the term crony capitalism, Steve, is one that I keep on hearing uh, many people who call themselves conservative Republicans use, and I agree. Uh, I have seen... Uh, really over the last 50 years. I, my first job was in Robert F. Kennedy's Senate office. I was an intern in 1967. Uh, and I've seen just this tide of money coming into Washington. Uh, now, the interesting question, and I think here is where we may disagree, is cause and effect. 
That is, I, see that I have seen the tide of money coming in, mostly from big corporations and from Wall Street and from wealthy individuals, in order to influence government. Uh, and uh, Steve, I don't know whether you see it that way or whether you see government being large, and as it gets large, there's more money coming in to influence it. Uh, but there's no question that uh, money has taken over much of our policy making, and I think that uh, I hope you you agree with me, and that's a real problem. So, look, I mean, uh, for, oh, by the way, let me just say right from the start that I want to thank my friends at uh, Young America's Foundation for sponsoring me to come here. So, thank for, thank you to yeah for that. Um, I think the causality goes both directions. I mean, I think there's a lot of naivete on the left of people say, oh, my God, there's so much money in politics. They're spending so much money on lobbying. They're spending so much money on campaigns. Well, folks, we have a $4 trillion budget, $4 trillion. Is it a surprise that companies and special interests, and whether it's the gun lobby or the this lobby or that lobby, is going to spend a lot of money? In fact, I'm surprised that uh, the lobbyists aren't spending even more money um, trying to elect candidates and trying to influence Congress because, you know, we've, when I first came to Washington, you mentioned you, that you worked for Robert F. Kennedy. I, when I came to Washington, I'm a little little younger than you are. In 1983, the, the federal budget was, um, at that time, I'll never forget this because I was working in the uh, Reagan administration at that time, and I was working for Jim Miller, who was the budget director. This was like 84, 85. And we introduced the first $1 trillion budget in American history. We weren't very proud of that as, as Reaganites. And I'll, I'll just tell you one really interesting, quick story about that. So Jim Miller was supposed to go on, um, on the Today Show, which was the big show with Katie Couric, and he couldn't do, do it that morning because he got sick. And he called me and he said, can, Steve, can you go on you know, Katie Couric's show and, and, uh, and defend the president's budget? And, and I spent literally the next two nights just completely cramming every statistic I knew in the budget. I knew what the budget was for the, you know, the Army, the, you know, the Department of Agriculture, rural subsidies, whatever it was. So I was ready for any question Katie Couric might ask me. And Katie, the lights come on, camera's rolling, Katie Couric kind of growls at me. She says, Mr. Moore, I see that Ronald Reagan is introducing the first $1 trillion budget in American history. She says, I, I, my first question for you this morning is, how many zeros are there in a trillion? And, <laughs> I, you know, Laura, I just melted down. I, you know, it was, it, was, it was the worst interview of my life. But, but my point is, it was a trillion-dollar budget back then. By the way, there are 12 zeros in a trillion. So we're talking about, a, I know that now by heart. Uh, but now we're at 4 trillion. And, you know, even adjusting for inflation, we've doubled it. It's, we're spending way too much money. We have so much crap in the tax code. One of the things we tried to do in this tax bill, we didn't we succeeded a little bit, but not much, is get rid of all the junk in the tax system. Uh, one of the things that I think Bob and I might agree on is the idea of let's get rid of all the special interest loopholes in the tax system for all of the you know, special lobbies and, and get the rates down, and that would be you know, an efficient tax system. So less spending and, and a simpler tax system, I think, would reduce the influence of the lobbyists. Now, what, why well, would you be against that? I'm not. I'm not. I, again, it's cause and effect. I, I, what I've witnessed... And this is certainly uh, the case, at least since the mid-'80s, is that the lobbyists come in and they want exemptions. They want loopholes. They want everything because they want to justify to their industry and to their trade association and to others that they've just, well, basically they're worth all of the money that they're charging. Uh, And that 
set of loopholes and that set of uh, exemptions makes everything more complicated. It makes the tax code more complicated. It makes the uh, enforcement more complicated. uh, And also it results in less revenue for the government. So it drives up deficits. Uh, There is almost no way to stop all of this short of... A flat tax. Oh, sorry. (laughs) No. Short of major campaign finance reform and full disclosure of who's, uh, who's, off, who's actually uh, contributing what to every campaign or against every campaign uh, and public financing and a lot of things that can be done even with Citizens United. And Steve, I think you and I would agree on much of that. So let me just give one example of, a, of something I worked this past you know, uh, six to nine months trying to get rid of a special interest provision in the tax code, something probably a lot of you in this room, I'm just guessing, probably favor, which is, you know, we have these massive giveaways in the tax code to the wind and solar industry. We pay them money to produce energy because they're so inefficient relative to, you know, coal and, and, and natural gas. And the, the industry even admitted, the wind industry said, there would not be no wind industry in America today were it not for these tax subsidies. And guess what? We could get rid of them because a lot of your Democratic friends, you know, uh, said they wouldn't, you know, they couldn't possibly support that, and some Republicans as well. My point is, too often times liberals say, well, we're against the special interest, we're against this or that, but when it's their special interest, they're in favor of it. Well, what about but oil and gas, Steve, get so much Get rid subsidy. of those subsidies, too. Well, but uh, let's, not... uh, let's get rid of all of those yes. subsidies. But Amen. what about, I don't understand how the carried Amen. interest subsidy, interest loophole... I wanted to, uh, I for, to get rid of that, too. Well, wait a minute. Well, how did it survive? Because everybody, because there including were about the president... Eight, there were about eight private equity, you know, billionaires. I mean, it sort of makes your point. We give a lot of money to the Republican Party who said we can't support this bill if you, if you get rid of it. I fought it, you know, and, and uh, in the end of the day, that private interest loophole is still in the tax system. I'm embarrassed by that, but I'm going to make, well, make a second I'm run I'm embarrassed by it, too, and I'm embarrassed by a lot of things, but we can't get rid of it and all of these loopholes and all of this corporate welfare until we get some control out of camp, uh, on campaign finance. And you would, I mean, it sounds like you're agreeing with me on this. You know, I, um, what I'm for is people disclosing what they're giving. I think we should have open rule. If you're going to give money, it should all be disclosed and let people out let, there see. Write that down. Full disclosure. Full disclosure. We have <laughs> By the way, I just have to make this point that, you know, you were saying that Robert Rice was one of this very prestigious Time Magazine Award for being one of the ten most successful cabinet secretaries. Aren't there only 12? <laughs> <laughs> no, there, there are eight, Just actually. teasing. <laughs> uh, but, I couldn't but, resist. But, but uh, look, I, I think quite seriously, this is something that uh, we have a lot of agreement on, and I've talked to some extremely conservative members of Congress who agree on this, too. It's very difficult to do. And the only way we're going to do it is if we get big corporations and the left and the right, Democrats and Republicans, to form a coalition and force full disclosure. I am for it. And you know uh, who I think actually... Stop the revolving door, at least slow the revolving door. I'm for that. Do all of these things. But you know what? I mean, look, I worked on the campaign. I was a senior economic advisor for Donald Trump. Um, What, you know what would his... And I... I went with him all, to all these areas of the country. I mean, I heard his speeches over and over again. His most powerful applause line, uh, other than build the wall, was drain, drain the, swamp. the swamp. And what American, look, Americans are as if much more even upset about this than you are, Bob. I mean, 
I'll give you a statistic that I think summarizes everything that's wrong with our government today in Washington. I live in the belly of the beast. I live in the swamp. Three of the five wealthiest counties in America are in and around Washington, D.C. Now, how did that happen? Because you know what, folks? We don't produce anything. All we produce is lawyers, lobbyists, special interests, politicians, rules and regulations, and we're getting rich off it. And you know what? And the American people are getting pretty upset about it. So, Well, in 19... Let me just... I, I don't want to go too long on this, because we have agreement here. In 1976... Three percent of retiring members of Congress became lobbyists. Three percent. Today, 49 percent of retiring members of Congress from both parties become lobbyists. And I think that's I'm surprised testament. it's that low. And mm-hmm. I'm te- I, I, I think it's testament to the amount of money uh, that is circulating in Washington, and that's got to stop. So we have Good. an agreement. Okay. Good. Let's Next. move on to tariffs. So, Bob, you were an early opponent of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and I think uh, Steve has got some criticisms of it, but I think was basically a proponent of free trade and of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, although you can speak for yourself. But tell me why you were opposed to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and does that mean you're in league with Donald Trump? <laughs> well, last question first, no. Uh, but I, was, uh, I, I didn't like the dispute mechanism. Okay. Uh, in fact, there was a similar dispute mechanism in a much smaller form in NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Act. But actually, uh, under TPP, you have a much larger version. And that dispute mechanism is between any corporation, for example, that feels that for some reason a member state, a member country to the TPP has discriminated against them, or there's a non-tariff barrier, health, safety, environmental regulation, labor regulation, whatever. Uh, and that, can, that dispute can be, under the TPP, could be, uh, dealt with by arbitrators, uh, and uh, the arbitrators are not necessarily selected by any member com- uh, country, but the net result is that anybody who has a grievance and is rewarded, could be rewarded, damages from those health, safety, or environmental regulations. If you follow my, my argument, that means that the TPP could discourage any member country from generating any protections for the health, safety, environmental, uh, or environment, or labor. Uh, and that, to me, uh, is not only an issue of sovereignty, but it also is an issue of, of just politics. It means it would be harder that much harder to actually to protect members of that society. In, in general, though, are you for free trade? Do you think that's a good idea? In, in general, general I, I, as a principle? In general, as a principle, of course, I think free trade is a good idea. I, but, see, this is the interesting issue, Henry. Uh, years, the, we have debated free trade for years, mm-hmm. and I've been on the side of, well, stronger environmental and labor protections. Mm-hmm. Steve, you've been on the side of free trade. Mm-hmm. We've, we've, we've debated deficits. I've been on the side of, well, uh, deficits may not always be a problem. You and other conservatives have been on the side of, uh, we really do need to control deficits. We've debated states' rights. And I've been on the side of federal government really does need to preempt states. And you and other conservatives right. have been on the side of states' rights. Right. So we've, what's debated, your point? we've debated Russia. <laughs> right. And I've been saying, right. Uh, right. you know, we really right. shouldn't be so hard on Russia. And you have been on the side of we have to be more mm-hmm. aggressive on Russia. Every one of these issues we have completely uh, well, flipped around under, so, under Donald Trump. Every one of them is now the opposite. 
So, I mean, look, um, I always say about Donald Trump, you know, because I've gotten to know him very well, and I admire a lot about Donald Trump, but look, there is a good and a bad and an ugly when it comes to Donald Trump. And every day, morning, morning Do you want to assign percentages to each of those? <laughs> every morning. This is not being taped, right? But no, every morning when I say my prayers, I say, please, God, let the, you know, the, the angel on his shoulder, not the devil on his other shoulder, prevail. Um, so when it comes to issues like Russia, uh, you know, I don't understand this dalliance with, uh, you know, even what he said today, congratulating Putin on the election. I mean, I, uh, why would you congr- congratulate a guy who rigs elections on winning an election? Um, so you're right about that. Now, on this issue... I, I do have a theory to explain that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure, sure I want to hear it. Okay. Um, on this trade thing, I mean, this is a, getting to be a very complicated issue. We're going to see, you know, in the next week or so, a major uh, call for a major tariff against China. I have to confess, I'm not an expert on on the TPP, so I'm not going to really get into that. I will say this, that I learned my economics from Milton Friedman and Arthur, who I think are two great, great economists, um, and they always talk about the four pillars of prosperity. And those pillars, I mean, I think they're just important to write down. Um, Sound money. I think we all agree on that, a sound currency that that retains its value. Uh, Second of all, you need free trade. Third of all, you need a light hand of regulation. And fourth, a good tax system. And I still believe that to the day. Though, If you get those four things right, you're going to have a prosperous uh, economy. Um, Trump challenges the conventional wisdom of conservatives on a lot of these things. There's no question about it. Uh, on trade, um, and we can get into this in a, in a bigger way, um, I think trade, I mean, I think Trump is... He, there's a new, what I call a Trump trade doctrine. And what that doctrine is, is, is um, using, look, the United States is the hub of the global economy, right? And every other country is a spoke. And what Trump is basically saying, and, I'm, and I've talked to him about this, is whether it's China, or whether it's Japan, or whether it's Korea, or whether it's Mexico, they need us more than we need them. Um, so let's say we had, God forbid, a trade war with China. It, what would it mean for the United States? What would it mean we'd have to, when you go to Walmart, uh, you know, Walmart, you might have to pay 10 cents more for toothpaste, or you know, you might have to pay, you know, 29 dollars more for a cell phone because a lot of these phones are made in uh, in China. If China can't sell for, to us, they go into a recession, right? And I think what Trump is basically trying to do here is use that leverage, and that's why I remember the other day when he said we can win a trade war or something like that. I mean. With Trump, you have to kind of read through what he's saying. What he meant to say is, we have a strategic advantage over them because, you know, if it gets to that point, they have more to lose than we do, and they're going to blink first. I think that's what Trump... And by the way, you can disagree with Trump on the, on the policy, right? I mean, you can say this is stupid. Like, I thought the steel tariffs were too stupid. But I will say this, because... The steel tariffs, I thought, were a bad idea. Because, you know, all you're doing is raising the price of steel. And he, I told the president, I said... You're not even going to create factory jobs here because, you know, we have, for every one steel worker, we have 50 workers in manufacturing that use steel. Now our steel is going to be 20% more expensive than the steel. So it doesn't even work in that respect. But I will say this, you know, and, and you know this because you've done this too. I mean, I went with Donald Trump to Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, West Virginia, Iowa, those blue states that went red. And I would say that if Trump had taken a conventional Republican position on trade, Hillary Clinton would be president today. So this is a challenge for those of us, Laura, who believe in free trade, right? We, have to con- we haven't convinced the American people that free trade is good. 
Well, but, but don't you think a lot of that has to do with the failure of both parties to deal with the consequences of technology, which That's is actually too. having a much bigger effect I, I totally on, agree on with jobs. You. I, and, and by the trade. way, let me just introduce you know, on steel. The reason we're losing steel jobs is not because of trade. It's because if you go, when I was 12 years old, my, I grew up in Chicago, my, my parents took me to a steel mill in Michigan. I mean, that was like a 19th century sweatshop with thousands of workers carrying around heavy beams. I mean, truly drudgery work. You go into a, a steel mill. A lot of injuries. Mill, a lot of injuries. Yeah. Today, steel mills are people walking around a laboratory. It's all being done robotics. Trump is wrong on this. We're not losing steel jobs because of trade. It's because of, uh, and by the way, that's going to continue. Ten years from now, there won't be any steel jobs probably, right, because of technology. Yeah. So, uh, but, but, but back, I mean, if it's true that both parties have failed to deal with the quote-unquote losers, the people who are losing right. their, uh, what had been middle-class yeah, jobs right. because of first technology, secondly yeah, globalization, right. Uh, then isn't the debate over tariffs sort of beside the point? I mean, shouldn't we say, let's not, let's not try to protect industries with tariffs. Let's try to make it easier for people to move from job to job and get better and better and better jobs sure. with better education, better job training, more of a reemployment system. Yes. Yes. Put that down. That's another issue. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, now, look, the problem is, like, Hillary would go to these, you know, towns in West Virginia. We went to these these coal towns. And, you know, these places have been just decimated in in no small part, in my opinion, because of Obama regulations that just killed the coal industry. Now, there's an example, though, Bob, where... Trump has gotten rid of a lot of those regulations, and guess what? The the coal industry is back. We're you know we're uh, and my point is though Hillary went and said exactly what you said to these coal. Oh, you can do something else. We'll you know retrain you for this or that. No, no. And, politically, that's a that's a. Yeah, it's a I hard mean, thing I, to tell a, no, a guy who's worked in a coal mine for 25 years. Oh, you know uh, you're not going to be able to do that anymore. You're going to do something else. But you know I'll give you another statistic. One out of 11 males in America today is is hired. What they do for a living is drive a vehicle. Now, how many of those jobs do you think will still exist 12 years from now? Four and a half million but, are going to be eliminated. Yeah, exactly. So we, this, this adjustment is happening. It's the issue of our time, frankly. I mean, folks, this technological boom that's coming, whether it's you know, artificial intelligence, whether it's robotics, whether it's the driverless cars, they are going to change life uh, in this country and around the planet in ways that nobody's looking at and make these other issues small. But, but, but so know. what does government do in these situations? Yeah. You want the government smaller, yeah. but it seems to me that if we're going to help people who lose their jobs in these instances and there are no other jobs, what do we say to these people? Don't we have to have stronger safety nets? Don't we have to have a universal basic income? Don't we have to have a larger earned income tax credit? Don't we have to have a reemployment system that provides education and job retraining that is really useful to these people? In other words, politically, both of us agree, it's not possible to say to these people, we're going to get you another job or you're going to get another job. But don't we have to be serious about making it possible for these people? 
Well, look, I'm not one who believes that this is the end of work and end of jobs. I mean, there will be jobs in the year 2025 and 2030 and 2035. There will probably be more jobs than there are today, but there will be different kinds of jobs. And, and we're not, I mean, my point is, look, the, the kinds of things you're talking about are small potatoes in the, in the grand scheme of things. What we have to do is get the next generation of workers ready for the, you know, look, you've got to have a skill. I mean, right now, today, if you have any useful skill out there whatsoever, you can find a job in 24 hours. And there's 5 million more jobs out there than there are people to fill them. So what are we talking about? There's not a shortage of, of, uh, of jobs right now. There's a shortage of people who are trained to do the jobs. If you're a mechanic, if you're a, uh, if you're a carpenter, if you're an uh, you know, engineer, if you know anything about computers, you can find those jobs out there. The problem is, and I'll say this about this university, but every university. I mean, we're graduating with kids from with psychology degrees and political science degrees, and frankly, there's not a big demand for those. Well, uh, well there's just, not... just for the record, there's a great demand for UC Berkeley graduates. <laughs> okay. They do very well. <laughs> they really, really do. That's why you're here, right? And this university no, is extremely great successful at educating no. people who go on to make of course. very, no, very good I, money. Look, I'm uh, I'd be happy to show you the data. About, uh, so, sorry. <laughs> So. But, I think, but I, I, I think, Henry, that, that Steve is absolutely right that the issue in that the down. future... <laughs> the issue in the future is not the number of jobs. Right. The number of jobs is, has, really does have... It reflects macroeconomic factors, uh, stimulating demand adequately. Uh, it's the quality of the jobs. It's what the jobs pay. And that's what I worry about. But higher-paying jobs, not lower-paying well, jobs. Well, that's what... We're not seeing that trend. In fact, for the last 40 years, Steve, you and I have been talking about right. this, uh, median wages have been stuck. Uh, there's been wage stagnation. Well, not the last... No, no, that's where you and I part company. For the last 15 years, they've been, uh, they have been stuck. But we saw... Now, you're, it depends on what kind of compensation. But if you look at just compensation to workers, when you include benefits and things like that, in the 80s, we had a big boom in middle, middle class uh, you know, compensation. And Laura Tyson is here. Uh, you know, what you guys did in the 90s, that was a great period for, for the middle class. I would argue the 80s and 90s were one of the great periods of, of uh, economic mobility for people. Now, it's stalled in the last 15 years because I think we've done a lot of stupid things that haven't been... Uh, good policy, but this idea that I mean, I look, I reject this idea, which you say all the time. Workers are not as well off today as they were 40 years ago. I mean, does anybody really believe that? I mean, come on. I, no, I mean, yeah. no. 40 well, it, years it, ago, I mean, we it, didn't it, have all these things. We didn't have the computers. We didn't have the you know the technology. We didn't have the big screen TVs. We didn't have the medicines that we have today. We don't. I mean, the world is so much. Would anybody really rather have been alive 40 or 50 years ago than today? Come on. Yeah. Well, here, here's, I mean, the, here's the thing. Uh, you know, 50 years ago, even 40 years ago, we had something called labor unions, which gave workers a lot of bargaining leverage. And right now, today, we have fewer than 7% of the private sector are unionized. Uh, and that shows there's an absolute correlation between the median wage decline of the bottom 60%, particularly men, and the decline of unionization. Uh, and Steve, you and I can really bore everybody with a data fight over whether or not <laughs> adjusted for inflation, today's wages for the bottom 60%, 70 or 80% of males are what they are better than they were 40 or 50 years ago. Uh, I don't think they are, but we can debate that. I think the point is that quality jobs are really critically important. And a lot of the anger that I saw in 2015 and 
2016, going into the election, one of the reasons I think that Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump did as well as they both did, surprising everybody, was both of them responded in very different ways to the anger that so many people had about a system, a political economic system, that was not responding. I, I agree with that. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's true. People are people, but I would only make the point that I think it was political, economic, and cultural. I mean, people, you know, look, what Hillary said the other day, you know, was the way I think a lot of us as conservatives think that liberals think about them, that, you know, there was a view of these, because I talked to a lot of these Trump voters, these middle-class voters, and they were basically feeling like, number one, they were afraid to speak out because of political correctness. One thing that Trump did that I thought masterfully was just, just, you know, put aside the rules of political correctness and violate them. And people would say, finally, somebody's saying some, the kinds of things that we wanted to say for 15 years, but we get shouted down every time we want to see them. Um, these kind of speech codes on college campus, I hope you don't have speech codes here in, in, uh, in uh, Berkeley. I mean, universities should be places where you have open expression. That's why I so much appreciate the opportunity to come here and, and talk. But the, too often, conservatives feel like we're just being smothered by liberal rules and, and, and uh, that kind of thing. And so um, I think it was cultural as well. Well, I don't. I, let me just say for the record, I, I know you don't mean this, but I think that Donald Trump has legitimized hate uh, I don't in America. That. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think he's legitimized a sense of uh, hopelessness of people and a sense that their voices aren't being heard. Yeah. Well, the other thing that you said about uh, Donald Trump saying that he was going to take on the swamp in Washington, he did say that. But the swamp is deeper and bigger and broader and fatter, and there are more swamp creatures than I ever saw in Washington ever before. But listen, I, I want well, I, I, to. I don't want. I, I don't want. This is not fair to Steve. This is Berkeley. And if you if you applaud what I'm saying, my life. yeah. This this. No. I mean, I really appreciate you being here. And I'm no, but amazed, I was, can I, I'm amazed go, you got a visa a trade to come thing. into Berkeley. Yeah. No, but look on this trade issue. I mean, I really want your kind of reaction. I'm going to throw out another kind of hypothesis on this, and I want your reaction. I, I asked Laura about this earlier. Trump is basically going to say we're going to put a 30% tariff on Chinese goods and service. And that's coming, I think, in the next week or two. And that's going to be a big boom. I mean, the world is going to react in a big way. That's going to get Beijing's attention in a big way. And, you know, I am a free trader, and I want you to react to this. But, look, China, the report just came out a few weeks ago. The Chinese are stealing $500 billion of our technologies every year. A lot of that technology and that know-how and the patents and the copyrights and the computer software, that's made right here, right? right in, in, in Berkeley and the Bay Area and Silicon Valley. They're stealing it. Um, we also know that what, you know, they're building up their military in China. We also know that the reason this lunatic in North Korea has a nuclear bomb is because China enabled that to happen. And you know what? I'm, I'm with Trump on this. I think it is time we get real really tough with China and basically say, you're not going to have access to American markets until you s behave like civilized people. And you're not doing that. You're cheating. And you can't have free trade with the country that's cheating and stealing. Well, I, I, I want to say, first of all, that China is a rogue in terms of trade. I agree with that entirely. Mm -hmm. And if you're incorporating, in terms of your definition of trade, intellectual property, mm -hmm. theft, I agree with that okay. as well. 
the so real what do we question, do about it? Well, what that's, do we do that's about the question. Yeah. What do we do about it? Because I'm, I'm afraid that a 30% tariff or any major tariff on Chinese goods coming to this, this country is going to shoot us in the foot more than it hurts China. Uh, how? And, how could that be? Well, it could be because China is a large and growing economy, and it is very self-sufficient in many ways. And they need it is, access it is, to and, our and, and it's, it's also its sphere of influence is growing. The United States right now doesn't play the role of world leadership that we played in the past. And I think that when we are in that position, China is going to continue to trade with the rest of the world, with Europe, uh, with Canada, with the rest of, with every major nation. We are going to be left out. Uh, I don't believe that. And, I, I, don't, I just don't believe it. I think that's why the, re, the rebuilding of our economy that's happening, in no small part because of Trump policies on regulation. What do you expect China will be able to do? Because, well, for example, one of the things you yeah. want them to do is to open up to us. But that might be even more frightening than a recession to them because that might lead to Americans being much more of a, uh, in the economy, maybe a Facebook run by Facebook in China that really isn't censored and so on and so forth. That's really scary to the Chinese. Do you think that's really feasible that something like that's going to happen? But I'm not sure I'm following. I'm not sure. Well, I'm I just saying that if we started to have more opening to China, that means we have, for example, perhaps a Facebook we're running in China that's uncensored, because I think that's the kind of thing you're asking for, right. real free trade. But if you have an uncensored Facebook in China, the regime is not going to be happy with of what's course. going to be on that Facebook. Of course. And I mean, look, this is a, an oppressive regime. They're tyrants. Right. They, they are not, a, you know, they, they uh, look, the, the, the leader there just made himself the, you know, the president for life. Well, they're they're for not going to have elections but So anymore. what do you expect them so, to do? I mean, are there things they can do that will satisfy we, Mr. Trump and yeah, us yeah, and that allow us yes. to not impose yes. a 30% So he's going to basically say a couple things. Help with disarming North Korea. Right? How many of you are for that? Don't yeah, you want to sure. have North That's Korea good. not have a nuclear bomb? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we have the leverage to force them to do it. That would be uh, good. What? That maybe, would be maybe good. we do, maybe we don't, but we should, we should try. Number two, uh, you know, we're, they have to start. I mean, this is a point that uh, Laura Tyson was making earlier, and I think it makes a lot of sense. We should get them to buy more of our stuff, whether it's our wheat or our cotton or whether it's our copper or computers or whatever, and actually pay us for it. And that's the kind of trade deal that needs to be made with China. And if they that's don't... That is precisely the question. How do we get them Because if they don't, more? then they're going to be severely penalized. And this is where I disagree with you. They're, they can't function as an economy in, in 2018 if they can't sell to America's $4 trillion consumer economy. Well, but there, there are two parts to your thesis. One is that they're going to be hurt more than yes, we are right. going to be hurt. Yes. And secondly, that by doing that, the outcome is going to be we get more leverage and that down the road they're going to change their policies. They're going to blank. Yeah. And they're going to blank. And you don't think they will? I don't. I think it's a dangerous, dangerous game to play and we could end up easily worse off. And Maybe. A, a, now, a lot of our products, the alternative? So a lot of our, the alternative? A lot of our exports. Well, I, you know, there may be an alternative in terms of, in terms of using uh, the rest of the world. The, the rest of the world has an interest in a open trading system. Sure. The rest of the world also Absolutely. has an interest in rules that everybody plays by, that are right. neutral rules. Uh, and why can't we? I mean, we, we were already making some progress. I mean, the WTO, I think, was a very good idea, the World Trading Organization. And Chinese ascension to the WTO, I thought, opened the way 
if it were correctly uh, they, used. Not, they, don't, they violate every WTO rule. I'm going to end this because yeah, okay. I think what we need to do is get a, cha- a panel yeah. of Chinese experts in here to say what's the likelihood they will blink or yeah, won't right. blink. I don't, because I don't in, know. In, you folks know a lot about economics, but I don't think China is your, yeah. your, your yeah. greatest expertise. Yeah. No, so let's not. go to another area where I think you will have expertise, and that's the 2017 tax bill. Mm-hmm. You've already said, Steve, that you think that it did good things in simplifying the tax code in some ways and also providing tax breaks that will help the economy. Uh, Bob, do you think the 2017 tax bill was a good tax bill and that it will really actually be equitable for people and, second of all, that it will stimulate the economy? No. Explain. Um, <laughs> You know, number one, I think it's exacerbating already inequality. Number two, most of the profits that, extra profits that corporations have got, uh, corporations are using to buy back their shares of stock. They are not using them to invest uh, or to increase wages of average workers. Uh, Number three, uh, I think that it's going to exacerbate our deficit and our national debt problems. Now, I'm not a huge worrier about the deficit or the debt, but generally speaking, they aren't going in the right direction. Uh, And number four, politically, it sets up the Republicans and the Trump administration for beginning to say, well, we can't afford, you name it, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Uh, it's, uh, It's kind of the star of the beast that we saw beginning under the Reagan administration. So for those four reasons, I think this was a terrible idea. And to add insult to injury, uh, I hear Larry Kudlow and his new boss are talking about a second tax cut. Is that right? There's some talk about that. So, well, let me let me kind of explain very briefly what we did and why we did it. Because I think it's important for people to understand the the the, the thinking behind the the plan. And so, Larry and I sat down with Trump two years ago, walked him through this. He got, he got it pretty straightforwardly. And I think I think you know you all will too. First of all, the heart of the plan, the gemstone of the plan, was to get our business tax rates down. We are, we, what we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes is we're living in a global economy. The genie has the bottle, is out of the bottle. It's not being stuck back in. You all aren't just going to be competing here in California against people in Tennessee and Texas and Florida. You're going to be competing against people in Beijing and Germany and France and Spain and Australia. We've got to get competitive. And we had a tax system, frankly, Bob, when it came to the way we were taxing our businesses, you couldn't have come up with anything stupider. You know, we had the highest statutory rate in the world. Uh, so we were at 40% when you count state and local, local uh, taxes. And the rest of the world, which, by the way, 25 years ago was at 40%, kept cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting. So much so that the rest of the world was down to about 20% were at 40 Ladies and gentlemen, if you care about America, you care about American workers and American companies, and you want us to be number one, that doesn't work. It doesn't work for us to be at 40 and them to be at 20. I call this a head start program for every country that we're competing with. Why would we want to do that? So we basically said to Trump, let's get that corporate rate down. You know, he wanted 15%. This is an area where he's a master negotiator. He stuck with 15% throughout, and that's how we got 21. If he had said 20, we would have ended up with 25. We're right back in the game right now. All of a sudden, the the reason I think you're so wrong about the impact of this in just the first three months, and we're just sucking capital now back into the United States in a huge way. I mean, the biggest economic news story, ladies and gentlemen, of the last 
three years was the Apple story. I mean, this is gigantic. Apple is bringing 300 billion, not 300 million, 300 billion dollars back to the United States, and they're going to invest it here. They're building a new plant with 25,000 workers. I mean, this is a big deal, and those are going to be good-paying jobs. Now, look, some of that money will probably be paid off in dividends or buying their own shares. By the way, why does a company buy its own shares? Because it wants to increase the value of the share, right? And we have 100 million shareholders in this country. They're all going to benefit from this, too. So that's been a huge benefit. We've already had 5 million American workers, the vast majority of them in the middle class, who've gotten bonuses, pay raises, and increases in benefits. I mean, the other day I'm walking down the street. I was in Dallas. This Guatemalan woman comes up to me. She, Are you the guy on CNN who talks about you? I said, she said, thank you for the tax cut. I just got a $1,500 bonus from my employee, my employer. Now, to Nancy Pelosi, $1,500 may be crumbs. But you know what? If you're making $40,000 a year, a $1,500 bonus is pretty significant. So this is going to help, in my opinion, Robert Reich, middle-class workers as we get more jobs here, we get more productive, businesses invest here. That was the whole philosophy behind it. It was not, and I'll repeat this 100 times, it was not because we wanted rich people to make more money. But here's a statistic for you all to think about. When you talk about the top 1%, you know, the people who you say have all the money, that what do those people do for a living? Two-thirds of them own, operate, and invest in small businesses. And you can't have jobs without employers. And, and that's what the whole thing was about, is getting money to, to the businesses so they could invest it in America. So, Steve, Bob, I'm going to give you a second. I just want to say there's cards on your chairs, and if you want to write out a question, please do so. Uh, and then there will be people coming by to pick them up. And Bob Reich. Well, for, for example, you can't have, and businesses are not going to invest without customers. And one of the biggest problems we have, and businesses face as well, is a shrinking middle class. I mean, with so much of the income and wealth of this country going to the top, you know, the, the wealthy people spend a very small percentage of their income and certainly their yeah, wealth. They're investing it in the businesses. Well, but they're right. not investing. That's that's the well, point. But, uh, what are they doing? Steve, with when it? you say Going, that when they're buying they back their shares of stock, and, and when you say that's great for everybody, that's not the case. I mean, the top one percent of Americans owns forty percent of the total stock market. The top ten percent own eighty percent of the total well, stock market. All, where do you think We're the taking, California teachers' pension fund is invested? It's all all this well, money is but, invested but in the, the stock fact, market. But you, but but that is the reality yeah. that the top ten percent own eighty percent of the total shares. We, we should let but people I, put their Social Security money in the stock market so everybody owns but, but stock. Steve, I mean, Steve, the reality we should, we should, is, the reality, the reality the is that taking all of these, this tax money, these uh, major tax cuts, and giving it to corporations in terms of increasing profits, and then turning around and buying back their shares and making the wealthy are even wealthier, that does not do anything about the underlying problem of stagnant wages and widening inequality. Uh, but be, besides yeah, I, that, besides okay, that, uh, there is kind of an underlying philosophical difference. And you and I have been around this. We, you know, we've debated this for 15 or 20 years about whether trickle-down economics actually works right. and whether there is any empirical data 
to support which triple is. down economics, which there isn't. <laughs> there is. I mean, we look at the same body of evidence. I mean, the three most prosperous periods, you know, for the last hundred years were the twenties when well Calvin Coolidge cut taxes in the sixties when John F. Kennedy cut taxes. Now we actually had a very prosperous eighties and nineties period as well. Reagan cut taxes. You could say, you know, I know that you all because you work. You say, well, Clinton raised taxes, but we did all these other things. We did welfare reform. We did free trade deals. We did the capital gains tax cut. I mean, look, when you lower your tax rates, you make America more competitive. You've got to admit that point. I mean, countries do compete. Why do you think all these countries all over the world have been cutting their corporate tax rate for the last... Well, that, that's, that's actually, you're proving my point, because when we cut the corporate tax rate, well, do you think other countries are not going to cut their tax rates? They probably rates? won't. They're going to do, exactly, get, so they're gonna do exactly what we do. That's exactly what... This, there's a race to the bottom. we didn't do it for 25 years, and the rest of the world, so we had this massive gap. The other thing we did, by the way, which I think was wildly successful, is we recognized that there was something like $3 trillion that was sitting offshore in Bermuda, in China, and Ireland, and all these countries, you know, that, that had lower tax rates than us. And these companies like Boeing and General Electric and, and Apple and Microsoft wanted to bring the money back, but they couldn't because they faced a stiff penalty. So Trump, I don't know why Obama didn't do this. I mean, the money was just lying there waiting to be picked up. So, we basically said, we'll charge you 10%. You bring it back to the United States. We think we're going to get about $2 trillion back. That's $200 billion for the United States government. It's $2 trillion that's invested here. I mean, what's wrong with that? In 2004, we did exactly the same thing. Well, under the same, wait a minute. Under the same <laughs> promise that it was all going to lead to big, big investment and it was right. going to generate more jobs and more, higher wages, and it didn't. But, but we did the same but, experiment Bob, we just before. had Apple bring $300 billion back. I mean, well, look, this tax cut would have been worth doing just to get Apple to bring all this money back. Well, let me ask you a <laughs> I mean, question really. that comes from something that one of the audience persons asked, yeah. um, and that's this. Um, suppose you're right that, in fact, this is stimulating the economy, and that's great, and jobs are coming back and so forth. Uh, if it is also, however, going to make the rich richer, and the fact is the tax bill took the top tax rate, 39.6, and made it 37%. Yeah. And therefore, that's one indication it it's going to make the... It did much more than that for the it, rich, wealthy. Pardon me? It did much more than that for well, the Well, I'm wealthy. just taking one yeah. thing yeah, that right. it did that actually palpably decreased tax rates on the rich. Is this the time, given what Mr. Trump's political coalition is about, for us to be going out and making the rich even richer? Is there a danger to democracy? Maybe we'll have a great economy, but a lousy democracy because we'll have a lot of people out there who are really ready for revolution because they feel like they've been so badly harmed and that this is the new Gilded Age with lots of rich people who are treating them badly. Well, and by the way, a lot of those people are here right here in this in Silicon Valley. I mean, yeah, we do have Bill Gates who has $50 billion and we have, you know, the people who run Apple who have billions and we've got Zuckerberg who has $50 billion. So what do you want to do? Would we be a better country if we just deported all those people? I mean, I, I just don't get this. Look, no, I think you but, all obsess. No, 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 no. I guess this I'm is saying, a serious why did point, we though. Why does the tax it, rate from 39.6% because we want, I made to 37%? This point because I know those, there's a technical reason, but yeah. tell me, was that good politics? Yes. We, I wanted the rate down okay. to 20. Look, in 1986, to give you a sense of how things have changed in this country, in 1986, Ronald Reagan had a bill with Bill Bradley and Dick Gephardt and Sam Nunn, uh, many Democrats, and we basically lowered their tax rates and broadened the tax, uh, you know, lowered the rates, broadened the base, 
and that bill that lowered the highest income tax rate, you know you're going to believe this, so you have to look it up, we got the lowest tax rate down to 28%, and that bill passed 97 to 3 in the Senate. Now, we couldn't get a single, we couldn't get one Democrat in the entire Senate to vote for a 37% tax rate. Bob. Uh, I thought that that was 86 bill was a very good bill. Uh, me too. Uh, and it also uh, leveled the playing field between capital gains and ordinary okay. income, and that was one of the most important aspects of that okay. bill. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm reminded here, Steve, of, uh, of something else that we have debated uh, almost steadily for the past 30 years, uh, and that is uh, the, the issue of economic growth mm-hmm. and what really stimulates economic growth. I mean, in the 1950s, uh, the highest marginal income tax was 91%, and the effective rate was 52% on individuals, and we were growing faster at an annual rate than we've ever grown before or since. You refer to the golden age of the 1920s. I don't want to live in the 1920s, even if I could. The 1920s were a period, was a period of extraordinary... Uh, Wealth creation. Wealth creation. Yeah, the and country it, got richer. Why do they think they caught the Roaring Twenties? I mean, every but had, it was also extraordinary inequality and right. corruption, and it was a kind of a period of time that led ultimately to the Great Crash and the Great Depression. Do you see any 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 consequence between nineteen in nineteen twenty eight and in two thousand seven? The top one percent in both those years, nineteen twenty eight and two thousand seven, had the highest share of total national income. And we know what happened in the year after 2007 and 1928. Do you think there was just there, well, was look, I mean, it is true. I mean, who are the people, who are these people on the top 0.01%? There are people like, you know, look, you could take Bill Gates, Zuckerberg, uh, you know, uh, Am, who's the Amazon uh, CEO, um, you know, th- th- those five have more money than most of the countries in the world, for goodness sake. So what do you want to do, confiscate, take their wealth away from them? I mean, look, here's my problem with the way you see the world versus the world. I want everybody to get rich, right? I don't care if some, I want more billionaires and billionaires in this country. I want everybody to get rich. We truly want to create a rising tide that lifts all boats. I keep hearing you, you, you saying about, oh, how many, there's too many rich people. No, there's not enough rich people in this country. We need more and more and more people say, to I get rich. I never say, no, I've and, never and said there's too many but rich the, people. But the point is, like, I've said, I've what Laffer would say to you, what Laffer would say to you is, look, a good economic system tries to make poor people rich. It doesn't try to make rich people poor. And that's where you and I disagree. You keep focusing on these people at the top. All these people in the middle, they, number one, these people are, the, are people who created incredible technologies. I mean, what Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and, and Amazon have done have been amazing. I mean, they hire I'm friends with Fred Smith of, of FedEx. He's a billionaire. He, he puts 100,000 people in jobs. And those are good-paying jobs. But Steve, I, I think what you are maybe not hearing what I've said for the last 30 years that we've been debating. <laughs> it, just it just doesn't come in. Is that you need a demand right. side. That is, you need a middle class. You do. A large, buoyant, and growing middle yes. class. And so I'm not saying that it's all about redistributing from the wealthy to the poor. I'm saying that what you need is a set of rules that actually make your middle class larger and steadily larger and more prosperous, and that includes public but I, investment. But I'm not hearing from, but that from, includes from public... people like you how to do that. Well, I was just about to <laughs> okay. say, tell you. <laughs> right. That includes public investment in really good schools and job training and 
infrastructure and public health and individual health as well. Healthcare is part of a productive system. You want to you want to make sure people are healthy because if they're not healthy, they can't be productive. So for all of those reasons, public investment is really critical. You can't have adequate public investment in all those areas unless you have sources of revenue. And where is the big source of revenue? Well, the big source of revenue has got to be, it's going to be either corporations, now you just said you don't want to go after them, or it's going to be very wealthy people who now have a huge portion of the total income so, and the total wealth. So what I think you're missing here, look, I, we both agree we want a burgeoning and uh, you know, upward-moving middle class. Um, you talk about investment in this country. I, w- the word that I disagree with is public investment. What our goal is with this tax cut, and we're already seeing very positive results in this regard, is what we call CapEx, the capital investment that's happening by businesses in this country. And guess what? In just four, you know, the four months since the tax bill has passed, we have more than doubled the, the capital investment rate than we had under Obama. One of the reasons the Obama you know, recovery was so flimsy and flat and anemic was businesses weren't investing, and now they are investing. And that's, there's a very direct relationship between the amount of money that businesses invest, when invest, businesses invest more in capital, whether it's equipment or machinery or computers, then workers are more productive on the job. When workers are more productive, right, Bob, they, get, they, they can be paid more. That's the reason why an American worker is paid more than a Mexican worker. They're more productive. So our whole thing, I mean, if Larry Kudlow were here right now, what he'd say to you is cutting the corporate tax is a middle-class tax cut, because those are the people who will benefit. You know, the, the studies show about 60% of the benefit from cutting the corporate tax rate, the benefits not go not to the shareholders, but to the workers who have more capital to work with. Well, you better tell that to some workers, because they haven't seen well, any benefits yet. Well, but it's only been four months. Well, but every time Republicans are in, they, there is a big corporate tax cut. There was a big corporate tax cut in Reagan. 2004, and there was a big corporate tax cut yeah, under Reagan. And, we, and, and as uh, workers did well in the 80s and 90s. I mean, why do you think, I mean, boy, it must not have worked very well because, gee, we cut the, ca- ta- the taxes in 1981 and Reagan just squeaked through with re-election winning 49 of 50 states. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think the middle class was doing I've, pretty I've, well back I'm, then. Steve, I've got a question for you. When okay. you sit down with Donald Trump, yes, and you've referred to that several times, you sit down with him uh-huh. and you brief him, how does he respond to facts, logic, and argument? <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm no, sorry. No, I'm serious. He I mean, is, I, I, mean I, I have not had the experience of sitting down and briefing no, he, him. He, he, look, now that Larry Kudlow is, is there, I expect I will have many more opportunities. Look, Donald Trump is an extremely intelligent person. I mean, he really is. I mean, he's, he's, he's an extremely intelligent. You couldn't pull off what he did. I mean, he pulled off, whether you love him or hate him, what happened in November of 2016 was the biggest political upset in American history. No, no other is even close to that. And when he started running for president in you know, June of 2015, he was laughed at. And this guy, you know, a television talk show guy, I mean, he can't possibly win and so on. And he went out and built this campaign. He has a sixth sense about what the American people want. You could call that demagoguery, but he sure tapped into something out there that nobody else saw. I think he's got the right vision. And his vision is very simple. It is to put America first. And that's something, frankly, Obama didn't do. We had these crazy climate change deals and all these, these, the Iran deal, all these things. You know, no, we want to, everything Trump is going to do is going to make sure that it's America's national uh, and economic interest, not in the interest of these other countries. But isn't that a view of the world 
that is a zero-sum game. No, no, it in isn't. In which either because, we as no, Americans it, win or they win. No, 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 no. When in no, fact no, the no, entire no, post-war no, prosperity worldwide the, has been a positive-sum no, game. We look for Reagan opportunities doctrine. for everybody to win. That's a great point. I want to, I want to address that. No, the Reagan doctrine is very simple. You, the United States of America, my friend Steve Hayward is here. He's written three great biographies on Ronald Reagan. The Reagan doctrine was very simple. When you are strong at home, you're strong abroad. When you're weak at home, you're weak abroad. Why is it, you know, look at what happened in the Carter years when we had, you know, Soviet tanks in Afghanistan and Nicaragua. We had the hostage crisis. We were weak at home and we were weak abroad. Trump is going to rebuild the American economy. At least that's what we're trying to do. So we're at the alpha male in the global economy. And when we get it right in the United States, the rest of the world will get it right. But I really being, believe that. But being the alpha male in the global economy <laughs> may be a dangerous thing to do. That is, the alpha males of the world uh, may not actually be the model for the future of leadership in the world. That, that's the point. We're going we're to show countries how to do it. You cut your tax rates. You, get, you, you have stable money. You, know, you, have, uh, you, ha- you have a light touch, touch of regulation. These kinds of things are what... I mean, look, economic growth is not complicated. And Trump is focused like a laser beam on the stock market and economic growth. And I think that's what he should be focused so, but, on. But at the same time, it's conceivable that because of the tax cut, he's going to have to cut... Uh, Medicaid, Medicare, maybe even Social Security. Do you think that's a good idea in a time when we have lots of people who are worried about income inequality and who feel like they're not moving forward and we're going to take those kinds of benefits away from them? Is this the time to be doing that? Trump was very clear. I mean, drove liberals crazy. I mean, I was on that campaign. Trump said day one, we're not cutting Social Security, we're not cutting Medicare. Now, it's the conservatives who don't like it. Medicaid, too, by the way. He did said he say Medicaid? Free. Okay, well, I'm not well, sure he knew the difference, but the point is he yeah. did say Medicaid. Okay, well, maybe not. But, but when it comes to Social Security and Medicare, which are extremely popular, look, I would reform those programs if I were president, but I'm not the president. He's made it very clear. We're not cutting Social Security and Medicare. And look, the fact is, you know, everybody in this room knows we're going to have to make reforms in those programs, right? I mean, we're all adults. We know if you look at the demographic situation, there's 10,000 baby boomers retiring every year. We're, we've got these massive unfunded liabilities. We've got to do something about it. It. I mean, I'm in favor of things like gradually raising the retirement age. I don't know if you are. Uh, you know, some changes in the benefit structures that might, you know, lower the benefits for the highest income people, that kind of thing. Does, does Warren Buffett really need Medicare? I mean, those are the kind of questions we need to ask. But it, for the time being, Trump has said, no, I'm not going to cut those programs. Um, so I don't think it's going to happen. He did say he would say Medicaid, get rid of and, and, but, but, but I think Obamacare he will cut and Medicaid are intertwined now. They're, they're one in the same program, essentially. No, no, they're really yes, quite they distinct. I mean, one is run through the states, one is run directly no, no, from no. Washington. Obama, what Obamacare really was was just a vast expansion of Medicaid, and we're now paying it's 90% part, of That's the, true, too. Yeah, that, so. yes. But he also said he would retain Medicaid, but again, he may not have known. Okay, so he missed... And it's hard, it's hard to figure those differences out. Um, uh, Bob, how would a universal basic wage be economically feasible? Uh, universal basic income uh, would be uh, feasible if it's a subsistence Uh, wage. And uh, in fact, some of the places that have experimented with it uh, have uh, used a lot of the public assistance that is out there and basically said, this is uh, going to be a substitute for a lot of individual programmatic public assistance. We're just going to make sure that everybody has a subsistence level. Uh, You can design it in a variety of ways, Henry. Uh, And uh, 
Switzerland just had a, well, they, 20, about 38%, I think, of the Swiss voted in favor of this, uh, which surprised people because uh, there was very little preparation for it. I don't think there's any way of avoiding a universal basic income. And by the way, this is something that Richard Nixon uh, was in favor of, as you remember. Initially, As yes. you remember. Yes, uh, so I think that uh, it's something that we will see a lot of agreement on in the future. Is a universal basic income a good idea, or should we strive instead to try to find ways to make sure there are jobs for everybody, perhaps even a government-guaranteed job? Well, I think we need to do both. I, I think we can do a lot with government-guaranteed jobs, uh, but as we were just talking about, it's not so much the number of jobs that we need to worry about, it's the quality of those jobs. And I am very, very concerned that as automation uh, artificial intelligence uh, continue to make progress, quote-unquote, we're going to see uh, a lot of people thrown into what might be called the personal service economy, in which they're doing retail, restaurant, hotel, hospital, surface transportation, child care, elder care. There'll be a lot of jobs, but these jobs don't pay much. Now, Steve is right. There could be some additional jobs in technician or technical areas. Uh, but, Steve, you're not talking about a large number of people here uh, suf sufficient to, to sop up all of the people who will be uh, uh, facing lower wages. Uh, okay, that's so, really... So, uh, to Steve, suppose, and maybe you don't want to get into this kind of conjecture, but I think it's worth asking it, suppose it turns out that there are, are a lot of jobs that get lost because of automation, robotics, and so forth. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do yeah, in this society? It's, are it's, you for a universal basic income? How about a government-guaranteed job? I mean, shouldn't we be thinking at least about some of these things? So it really is the issue of our time. You know, it really is. This is the big one, right? What, you know, when the, the, so many of the millions of jobs that exist today aren't going to exist 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, and, and you know, that, this is the digital age. And it's an incredibly exciting thing, by the way. We shouldn't be nervous about this. I mean, my God, for those of you in your 20s, I mean, I'd give anything to be in my 20s today. You're going to see the most amazing transformations. Just as we're, this is where I think, you know, Bob is so wrong saying the middle class is worse off today than 40, 50 years ago. I mean, that's... I just, how can you possibly say that and look at all the things that middle class people have today versus what people have, to, you know, go to a middle class home 40 or 50 years ago and see what they have today. I mean, the affluence of America is really an amazing thing. Well, and they I, will be better off 20, 30 yeah, years from yeah, now than they are there's today. There's one thing you've said that I completely agree with. Uh, when you said that you would like to be 20 years old again, I would, too. <laughs> I would, too. You would. I, would, I would like that well, as well. You would. No, Steve, no, no. Let me let ask me, another so, question. So when it comes to this issue of a right. universal basic income, right. you know, I'm open-minded to it. I mean, it would depend because we're going to be rich. I mean, people are going to be so much richer 20, 30 years ago than they are today. So we can afford to have, we will probably be able to afford to have that so that everybody has health care, everybody has a good education, everybody has a minimal income that they can get by on. But here's my worry about it, Bob. Here's, because we will have enough money for that. The most important thing that happiness is tied to work. There's just no question about it. And this idea of just giving people stuff, I do worry that it has a negative work incentive effect, and people are not going to work. And, you know, the best thing, work is where you get dignity and purpose in your life, and I worry that we're going to incentivize people not to work rather than to have a fulfilling well, life. But then who's going to provide the jobs is the well, question. Well, that's a good question. And, that, I mean, and, you know, and if it were government, would you... 
Well, look, distressed nobody that? knows. I mean, we, if I had told you 10 years ago, just to give you a sense of how these technological changes are saving, changing society, if I had told everybody in this room 10, 12 years ago, the United States was going to have the biggest oil and gas boom in the history of our country, there's nobody who would have believed that. Even people in the energy industry didn't think it would happen. And the most, arguably the most important invention of the last 10, 12 years in terms of American economy has been fracking and horizontal drilling. It's completely... We went from a country where people were worried about whether we're going to not have enough oil and gas. Now we got it. We're going to, you know, in five years we'll be producing more of this stuff than any other country. My point is that technology came along. Nobody predicted it. And nobody predicted the internet except Al Gore, right? I mean, all, the, all these things. So we don't know what the future holds. We don't. We just have to trust that we'll get this right. Uh, Steve, just, uh, you, you raised an issue that I, I wanted to get your very explicit read on, and that is, do you think climate change is a problem? Um, I think that if we're going to change, if it is a problem, it's not going to be solved by these government edicts like cap and, you know, this idiotic Paris Accord where China and India keep polluting, polluting, polluting. It's going to be solved by technology, right? What, what Technological about? change, and, and that's why we have to get richer. Because if we get richer, we'll be able to solve this problem. Would a carbon tax be helpful in terms of stimulating technological change. So that's an interesting change. question. So maybe you and I could sit down and maybe we could get uh, Laura Tyson and some of the other good economists in this room and we might be able to come up with a deal here. I've always thought there was a deal to be made. Well, George Schultz uh, and other No, I don't like his public. plan. You I don't, don't like, like his, his no. plan. But, you know, you let, let's say we have a carbon tax and we, we eliminate the corporate tax or something like that. So we're putting a smaller tax on capital, right, and a higher tax on energy. I could live with that. I mean, look, there's a deal to be made here. For those of you who really believe that climate change is the greatest catastrophe ever to hit the earth, then let's make a deal. You know, let's make a deal. But the deals that are being put out by liberals, I mean, they say we want this big tax, carbon tax, and by the way, we want to spend it, all the money on, you know, wind energy and, you know, we talk about corporate welfare, we're going to give it to all our friends, you know, who make wind and solar and things like that. No, the deal has to be we give you a carbon tax and we get lower taxes on capital so we have more investment. And when, you know, you all are ready to sit down at the table, I do think there's a deal to, to be struck on that. Are you, you want to shake on that? One? Yeah, I'm ready to sit down <laughs> okay, well, anytime. You and know. you tell you tell um, the president that I'm, I'm ready. I mean, I think the president would be open to a deal, but but not. I mean, what the Schultz wanted to do is basically combine two bad ideas into one, which is just give people a check, right? Everybody would just get a check, and you have a carbon tax, and those are two bad well, ideas. But Alaska one. has a deal, something like yeah, that, I know they doesn't do. it? Well, they, that's a, they, they have a, uh, what they call the dividend from all their energy production. And so they pass out, a, you know, if anybody wants to get rich, you move to Alaska and you get, like, every year you get a $5,000 check from the government, from the royalties from the... But, but what, that's a different But But that, that's a similar principle, isn't it? No, because, well, I'm not so sure it, it is because they're actually getting a check for producing more things. You're talking about a, you know... No, no, a, no, no. But, a, but, but here's, a, here's a check coming from the government that is related... Well, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily in favor of the dividend. I'm just saying it does... That's the, what they've, the, Ameri- the people in Alaska have decided to do. Is to, is, they don't have an income tax in Alaska, so they can't cut their income tax. They have so much money from oil that that's what they've decided to do with the money. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to ask <laughs> each of you very briefly to, to answer uh, this question, which is, so you've debated for many, many years. So can you name... We like each other, no. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to ask you two questions. First, what have you learned from the other? 
and what do you admire about the other? Starting I, with Bob. Okay, I have learned from you, Steve, uh, that it is possible to stick to your guns in the face of evidence to the contrary. Oh, ow! No, no, I, I think there's something admirable about, about consistency. Uh, I've also learned from you uh, that it is possible to be loyal uh, to uh, somebody who is now president, who shows absolutely no sign of intelligence. But, <laughs> but, but you, I, I think there's some admirable quality to, to actually giving him the benefit of the doubt up to a limited point. You might, I think you've gone beyond that limit. Uh, but more seriously, let me just say more seriously, uh, I've enjoyed debating Steve for many years, and uh, even though we don't see eye to eye on anything, uh, I like you. I don't respect you, but I like you. <laughs> so, um, Steve, like, on Donald Trump, I'm going to just say one thing about Donald Trump. You know, I think the Wall, I read this the Wall Street the other day. I think it summarizes everything. You know, Donald Trump is the worst president ever, except if you look at his results. And the results so far have been amazing. I mean, what's happening in this country right now, the economic revival is beyond what even I thought. And so the guy is producing results. We don't have, the truth is, we don't have to have this debate week after week about whether the tax cuts are going to work, right? Because the tax cuts are in effect. We'll just have to see what happens now. You know, I'm kind of tired of debating about it. You know, let's see what happens. This is an experiment, right? And you're going to buy me the most expensive dinner here in uh, Berkeley if we continue to have 3% growth for the next three years, which I think we are. And I'll buy you... I thought the prediction was 4%. Well, I think we could get three and a half, four percent possibly. You know, I really do. If we could continue to do the right things when it comes to these tax policies. Now, look, Robert Reich is, uh, is an honest liberal. Three and a half percent, I will treat you to dinner. Okay. Uh, and well, but we're going to we, get it this year. If we're we get, get under three percent, you treat me to dinner. Okay, you got it. And, uh, and so, look, I think Robert Reich is an honest liberal, and I don't think there are enough of them. I think you genuinely, I, my view of liberals in Washington is what they care about is power. You know, that's truly, now you can say that's cynical. I think they like power, and that's the way they want the government controlling things. I think you have a genuine regard uh, for middle-class Americans, and I do too. And we just see the world in a different way, but I, I do admire that. Well, let, let me ask one final question that I'd like each of you to comment on, because I think it's a question that comes from the heart of people here in Berkeley, which is that we're concerned about the future of democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, we think that, uh, in many of us, that Donald Trump has done things that really have reduced uh, our, our, our belief that the rule of law is what's going to prevail, and so there's a concern about that. Uh, there's a concern that in his race baiting, and I really don't know how else to describe it, I think that's really a factual description of what he's done, that he's going to lead to a lot of people feeling hurt and maybe engage in unrest and, in fact, reasonably be really upset about what's going on in this country, and so that he's really caused a lot of underrepresented minorities and other sorts of groups to feel like he's really not their president. Now, it is true that maybe white Americans in the states you talked about think he is their president, but is division a good idea right now? Is that something that conservatives, especially Burkean conservatives, you're a 
libertarian conservative, but a Burkean conservative. Would a Burkean conservative think that's a good idea at this time? So, Wouldn't a Burkean yeah. conservative worry about the integrity of government? I, I don't defend a lot of the things that Donald Trump says, and a lot of times I just roll my eyes and, you know, I, I can't believe he says some of the things he says. But I will say this, that um, when liberals call conservatives racist, homophobes, Islamophobes, you know, uh, you know terms like that, it, it, every time that was said about Donald Trump, his vote margin went up, and because people are tired of it. I mean, let's have a debate about gay marriage. Let's have the debate about you know, climate change. Let's have the debate about you know, our policy with respect to Muslims. But to, to just basically name call people and say, oh, you must be a racist if you support, well, I mean, the other day I was on a show and I said I, I support welfare reform, and this person said, I'm a racist. I'm a, really, what is this? I mean, I'm a racist because I support welfare mm-hmm. reform? I think you all, as, as you know, left to center people, have to think about whether that's productive in the debate. Well, I, let, uh, me, let me just say, I, I think it is unproductive uh, to use labels, whatever the labels are, mm-hmm. uh, including... But you, you, did it to, you already did tonight. You said you thought Trump was a racist. I said it. I thought. I okay, think I'm sorry. Go. No, yeah. Henry. No, but I thought you Henry just can something. be blamed, but I can't be blamed. I, <laughs> okay. No, I, I don't. I, I try seriously. Yeah. I don't think it's helpful to use right. labels, whether it's racist, but even left and right and liberal and conservative, okay. because it, it means less and less. Uh, and as I started to talk about before, I think that's Donald Trump. <laughs> sorry about that. Tell him I, I'm a technophobe. Actually, I'll talk to him. I'm almost done. All right. So. <laughs> uh, but I, but I, I do think that it is important to investigate, uh, keep our ears absolutely open to different views. One thing I tell my, my students all the time is that the only way really to learn is to talk with people who disagree with you. I totally agree Because with that. that is a way to test your views and test the facts and test your analyses. Uh, and I worry very much, Steve, that, uh, and this is, this really, uh, I, I think, goes to the fundamental issue here. I worry that in this country we're not really talking to people who disagree with us. I mean, no, that's uh, a, that's the Berkeley problem. is a cocoon, and Washington, it and is. conservative Washington is a cocoon. Well, so, and, are, so are university campuses cocoons, and, too, too often. Yeah, too often they are, absolutely. Uh, and that's, I, you know, years ago I lived in a cocoon uh, called Cambridge, Massachusetts. Right. And I decided to go 3,000 miles to Berkeley, and I didn't realize at the time that it was the same place. <laughs> Except the weather is much better here. <laughs> well, that's okay. uh, uh, but uh, I, I am open to your ideas for how uh, people of different points of well, view... Well, that's why I debate you for 20 years, because I figure at the end of the day, you're going to come around to my way of thinking. <laughs> Just, anyway, so I, I want to thank you, thank you. Uh, both. Uh, I personally feel like I've learned more about tariffs and about, uh, I'm serious about this, tariffs, (laughs) that I've learned more about the thinking that's going on with respect to the Trump administration and tariffs. Uh, I now have questions about what China's reaction is going to be to a 30% tariff, and I think those are questions that should be looked at very, very carefully. Uh, I've learned about what the rationale is for the tax cut and uh, some of the issues that surround that. Uh, And then the future of jobs. I thought we had a really good discussion about the concerns that many people have that jobs might not be as prevalent in the future and what do we do about that and some very interesting ideas about how to think about that. I really want to thank Stephen Moore for coming this distance and being with us. 
Uh, and uh, I think it was an thank incredibly you so much for having me. productive conversation. Well, thank you all for thank being you, so, uh, so uh, kind and generous. Thank you very much.